Good morning again. We're a little anemic today, although not quite as bad as when we started. I thought maybe um, I'd scared more people away, but it's just a handful. One of the traditions that, uh, that I have with, with my youngest is when you guys are here doing Awanas, I, uh, I, I take a walk with her, so I stay home with Anna, and we walk around the neighborhood. And our neighborhood is chock full of Halloween decorations. And she, she notices them all. And as we walk, she'll ask me what each one of them is. And then she'll, she won't wait for a response. She'll just go ahead and tell me what it is. And her interpretations of what she sees are kind of interesting. So we're walking around, and she looks at the monsters and goblins. She'll look at them, and she'll say, what's that, Daddy? Oh, it's like a hippopotamus. And then she'll look at the ghost, and she'll say, oh, it's, it's like butterflies or a pocket. And then uh, there's this witches dancing in a circle. She looks at it, oh, it's little girls playing ring around the rosy. And it's, it's interesting because she has no categories for what she's looking at. So she associates it with whatever she can see, whatever she's seen in, in books or in real life, and, and those become the, the closest thing that she can associate those items with. And I could, I could tell her, well, no, that's not what they are, but it, it wouldn't change anything. I could give her a, a definition out of the Oxford English Dictionary for what a witch is, but she, doesn't, she wouldn't understand it. It doesn't mean anything. There's no category for her to stick that in. And I, I tell this story for, it, for two reasons. One is that this is how we all are. We, we all, we have words. We're given words. God made us by words, and so we're, we're people of words. But the way that we learn them is we, we build picture after picture after picture. And so the categories that we stick things in, they come through, through something that we've learned in the past, and we make an association, and, and then we, we build on that over time. And in one degree or another, that's, that's how God made us. And furthermore, that's also how he teaches us. So that if I, come, if I come to God's Word and I come with the idea that I can take an English Oxford Dictionary of an, an English word and grasp it, uh, I'm, I'm fooling myself a little bit. Because even, even I, as I think I walk around that neighborhood and, and I know what the dictionary says a witch is, but I have no bucket to stick that in. I don't really know what it is. I've read in some books, and, but I have no, no category to define that with. And so, so I said two things. One is that that's how Paul teaches us. He uses, us, uses words, but those words are more than, more than just a singular idea. They've been built through, through the Bible. That's, that's partly why God gives us a nice, big, thick Bible that's built upon centuries and millennia of history is we're building out for ourselves understanding that when you take a single, single word, it doesn't, just, it doesn't just have a singular connotation. It's rich in meaning. They say pictures a thousand words, but one word takes a thousand pictures and incorporates them into a single idea. And Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he does that. He's taking these, these words, and they're rich with history. 
Now, sometimes that history aligns with our understanding. Sometimes that, because we live in a Judeo-Christian world, we have naturally built in some of the right ideas behind words, but sometimes we don't because we live in a world that's fallen with sin, and so we need to rebuild what, what God means by learning from His Word, learning from the Word. And so that, that's one thing, a defense of why I'm spending a little bit longer in this section, and also an encouragement to try to stick with it. It's, it, it can be a lot of work to dig through God's Word and to uncover then the layer upon layer of meanings that God has given an idea. But that, that's, that's how we categorize, that's how we learn who God is. Second thing, though, I noticed out of that, uh, that, th- those walks is, although my daughter has no bucket to stick them in, I, I really don't either. And why, why is that? Look around and we talk about powers of darkness and forces of evil, the powers and the authorities, and I don't have much of a bucket to stick those in. We were talking a few weeks ago, um, one of my daughters was asking me about demons, I don't really know all that much about demons. I know the little bit that God's Word says, but I have no experience there. And then you read in a book like Ephesians, and Paul tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against forces and powers, uh, the spiritual darkness. And yet around us, maybe you have different experiences. I don't have much of a category for that. Now, in other countries, you hear about missionaries, and they'll, they'll tell you that there are powers and forces. But I, I would say where we have no category to understand those things, thanks be to God, because he's conquered them. I have no fear, I have no worries, because Jesus on the cross has conquered the powers and the authorities. And what's left is a stripped-down vestige of what once was. So if you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to look, look again to Colossians. Father, we come, we come to your word to learn, and Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us as we seek to know you, to hear your word in fullness and depth, and Lord, we know that there is more to hear, because you're an infinite God, and you communicate to us even uh, more than our capacity to receive And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, help our minds to be opened up to the riches and the fullness of the mystery that you have uncovered for us. And we pray that you would encourage us by that and build us up in a fortress of armament so that we would not be swayed or persuaded by what's foolish and empty. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So we come again to the same passage, and I'm going to try again to finish this. I said I would, so hopefully I'm not a liar in the end. But we're looking, and we we do need to remind ourselves of the context. We won't be able to understand what Paul expresses of the work of Christ in in the way that he does. Verses 9 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2, they're a partial definition of what we call the gospel. They, they tell us about the work of Christ, but the specifics of what Paul is communicating to us is within the context of his encouragement. He's warning the church at Colossae to not be persuaded by what's empty and deceitful, by philosophies that will, 
that will take you captive and lead you into plunder. And that specific warning, it, it, it clarifies why he gives us the details about the cross that, that he does. Paul says that he's been struggling to proclaim the mystery that Christ has now revealed. He told us that the past mystery which was hidden for ages has now been revealed to his saints, and that mystery is Jesus. All of the gifts and the treasures that come with him are incorporated into the unveiling of God's son Jesus, the very one whom the angels longed to know, whom they longed to see. They wanted to understand the wisdom of God. Paul says that's been revealed. And his entire life is now devoted to following in the footsteps of Jesus, struggling, sacrificing himself, just as Jesus died, so that the church at Colossae, so that we, who have never seen Paul face to face, might know and understand that mystery, that we might be completed and made mature in Christ. More specifically, if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, I want you to know this great struggle I have on your behalf for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen my face. So that's the all men that he's struggling for. And this is his specific struggle, that their hearts may be encouraged, that they may be knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the fullness of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says that his struggle is for this purpose, so that the Colossians' hearts, so that our hearts may be encouraged, so that we may be knit together in love, and all of this comes about when we begin to grasp the wealth of the fullness of understanding which comes from the knowledge of Christ. So Paul says that when, when we know, when we, when we hear and understand and grasp a hold of the truth and the knowledge that is found in Christ, we, we possess a full assurance. We'll be encouraged. That's, that's, that's natural. But this encouragement, this assurance that we have in the work of Christ, that becomes the bulwark of his protection against those who would come in to delude and to steal, steal us away. We have to know what Jesus has done. Now, this is, this is separate from salvation. We can grasp a hold of God without a, a larger understanding of all that Jesus has accomplished. We do. We, we, we come with very minimal understanding. But for protection... If we're not going to be deluded and drawn, drawn back out into an, another world with another object, another purpose, we have to grasp then the fullness of what God has done in Christ. And so that's, that's what Paul is doing in this section. He's telling us the fullness of what God has done in Christ so that we would be filled with understanding and knowledge of the hidden treasures and wisdom so that we won't fall away, so that we won't be deluded or persuaded. So that's the context of what he says. Uh, I'm just going to read then again one more time, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive, so that no one plunders you through a false love of wisdom, through an empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness 
of deity of God dwells in body, and in him you also have been filled, and he is the head of all rule and authority. And in him you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, in the stripping of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the work of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having blotted out the handwriting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had stripped the rulers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him. The center of Paul's encouragement in this text comes in verses 12 and 13. We, you, have been raised up with Christ. You were buried with him, you were raised with him, and then in verse 13, the pinnacle of what God has done in Christ is you have been made alive together with him. This is what Paul wants us to understand on both sides of that. He gives an explanation, a reason, how did God do it mechanistically? How did he make us alive together with Jesus? But fundamentally, this is what we have to know. You have been made alive together with Jesus. And we know that that's his point because he picks it up after, after proceeding with the warning in verses 16 through 23, and that, that's specifically related to the details that he gives. He picks it up in chapter 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, if then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking him. Keep looking up into the heavens where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And why do we do that? Because that's where your life is. You have been made alive together with him. So look at him because that's where your life is embodied, embedded. That's where you have confidence. Uh, just a note here, we'll, we'll get to chapter 3 in a little bit. But one of the problems, the reason that we can fall prey to deluding influences, to a fake love of wisdom, even though the mystery has been unveiled, even though it's been uncovered, the one that for ages past was covered up has been shown to us in Christ. And Paul's even right now telling us what that mystery is. We are still susceptible to delusion, and the reason is because the whole world doesn't see the fullness of that mixed mystery. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 4, or 3, he says, you have died. That's one of the things we're, we're talking about in verses 12 and 13. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So remember, what was hidden has been revealed, but to everybody else, it still looks hidden. So you walk around, and, and, and your neighbors look at you and say, well, you're no different. You're alive like I'm alive. Your life is the same as my life. And there may be differences in morality or this or that, but we, we can begin to believe that idea that life means that we have a beating heart and breath in our lungs. But Paul says, no, your life is hidden with Christ and God, so everybody doesn't see the fullness of the mystery unveiled yet, but they will. So Paul's encouragement to us is to cling on to this hope that our life is hidden with Christ. So set your eyes on him, and that's going to define then everything that we do and how we think and how we understand who we are as people. All right. So now we're going to look at some of these details again. I would encourage you to try to stick with me. I, I know I can be confusing in some of the details, but there's, there's a lot of... Um, 
There's a lot of pictures behind these words, and I'll draw out some of them, and I, I want to connect them together so that we have a better idea of what it means to be alive and how, how God accomplished that through history because the two things are related. What it means for us to be alive together with Christ is related to how God made us alive together with Christ. So if you look then, we, we've discussed at length verses 9 and 10 and how the fullness of God dwells in Jesus and body and how that's an encouragement to us because that's the goal is that the Spirit dwells in body, otherwise we don't have life. And how then we are made full, so God dwells in us by us dwelling in Jesus. Whether you understand that or not doesn't really matter. It's truth. We, we dwell in Christ and thereby the Spirit, God dwells in us and we're lifted up in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then in verse 11, we see this extended description of the last in Him. How can it be that God dwells in us? We who were sinners, we who were full of transgression, and as he says in verse 13, you were dead in transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And we know from Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, that the Spirit of God will not strive with mankind forever because we are flesh, because of the deadness of our flesh. And so the problem remains the same. So how can it be that we've been made alive? How can it be that God now dwells in us in an even bigger and fuller way than ever uncovered before in history of ages past before the cross? How can those things be? And on either side of this description, so verse, verse 13, we've been raised up with him. We've been made alive together with him. He's forgiven of us our transgressions. On one side, he describes what's done in and with us. So when we're thinking about what God did to us, how he raised us up, and how we participate in that salvation, that's described in, in circumcision and in baptism. And on the other side, in verse 14, he answers then the two questions externally to us. So there's two problems, if you look in verse 13, the problem of transgression and the problem of the uncircumcision of your flesh. Those are in the way of God making us alive together with him. And he solves those problems both within us, for us, and also there's an external set of problems. When people fight about what, what the gospel means, what atonement means, they're looking at one aspect out of all four of these. But God, in the fullness of what he's done, he conquered every problem. Every transgression and uncircumcision of our flesh is moved aside, both internally and externally. And his answers to these questions are ones that we don't always think about, particularly on the external side. We tend to talk about salvation internally and what God has done in substituting himself in Jesus for our sins, taking the penalty of our sins, and that's whereby and how transgression is removed. And that's here in these verses, but there's also more. So I'm going to try to finish, and we're only through the introduction. Okay, so, one more part to the introduction. We're not finished with the introduction. I didn't think I was very clear last week, so in, in tackling the first two of these items, I need to revisit some of the observations we made last week out of Genesis 6. You don't have to turn there, I'm just going to give them to you, for those of you who like points, because they're really easy to write down. Um, let me hand them to you this way then. The problem, as I already said, comes out of Genesis 6 in that God said, Yahweh said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he's flesh. 
It's the fundamental issue that Paul is dealing with. And he says, Yahweh says that the wickedness of man is great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his hearts is only evil continually. Those are, those are the same two problems we see in our text. You were dead in your transgression, so the, the sins that we see in Genesis verses 5 and 6, every intent and thought is wickedness continually, and you're dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So not only do you actively sin, not only do you actively rebel against God, but our bodies are made and they're weak. They're dying, and we not only outwardly sin, but we're composed then of this flesh that is corruptible. And so both the corruptibility of our flesh and the sin which stands in high-handed rebellion against God must be removed or the Spirit will not strive with us forever. So that's the problem. The problem is flesh is corrupt and we transgress. We trespass on purpose and on accident. Both. We're weak. Now, in Genesis 6, verses 11 through 13, this is what he said. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. The end of all flesh has come before me, for earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So remember, sin grows and grows and grows. It spreads outward from Adam and Eve to their children, in their children, and, and then culminates in, in a story in which the entire world is wicked, with the exception of Noah. Noah has been preserved. But one observation I did not make last week is that in the language of Genesis 6, all flesh has corrupted their way upon the earth, and God's answer is, I am going to destroy all flesh. The word corrupted and the word destruction are the same Hebrew word. So if you think about this, and this, this is true throughout the Bible, God gives us the very thing that we already did to ourselves. All flesh is corrupt. We destroyed ourselves. In, in our choices and the transgressions of our heart. So the corruptibility of flesh came about through us, and God gives us then the end of that corruption. So the flood is the natural outworking of the flesh. All right, all that is in point one, the problem. Secondly, the solution. Yahweh says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. I never got to the punchline of this observation, but he uses the word blot out. And, and I told you to hang on to that. I expect you remember that from last week, even if you weren't here. I'm sure all of your steel trap minds kept a hold of that and wondered why I never brought it around. God says, I will blot out mankind. That, that word exalifo in Greek is the word to anoint out. So you can get the picture that with the water that covers the surface of the face of the earth, God takes water, which has a cleansing attribute, but he blots out all of flesh. And, of course, that means death in Genesis 6 through 9. They all die. Everything in whom there's breath, the Spirit exits. That word blot out appears in our passage again in verse 14. There is a parallel to the blotting out of all flesh. And in verse 14, the blotting out of the handwriting of decrees which is hostile to us and stands against us. These two ideas go together. There's an, an internal in which God deals with flesh, and there's an external in which God deals with the commandments that stand against flesh. We'll have to do a little more digging to get to what that, that means in verse 14. 
but I, I want to point that out. So the solution is to destroy flesh by blotting them out. And then a covenant is established with the remnant of flesh. So two of every kind get on the ark, God saves them through the water, and the covenant is established then with Noah. And along with that covenant, we have a promise, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from its youth. Instead, I'll establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there ever again be a flood to destroy the earth. And remember, we said God put the sign of the rainbow in the clouds, and it looks forward in history to what that rainbow actually is. The city of God built of uncut stones in which each one is fashioned by God, not by human hands, and then God in the center of that city shines through them so that we have the picture of a rainbow emanating out from God's throne room in the end of Revelation. So all that is, is forecasted, and that explains then in verse 11 why he says you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's because God is bringing in all of this imagery about what God's house is made of. It's not made by human hands that make and shape and cast idols. Instead, it's made by God himself. And so God is looking forward in history, and our passage in Colossians is how God deals with it. How does he cut out stones without using human hands. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the stripping of the body of flesh, which is the circumcision of Christ. We see that explained at the cross in which the stripping of the body of flesh is done by and through death. But circumcision, circumcision was given all the way back in Genesis 17. So if you're keeping... Here's the next one. The circumcision of the Abrahamic covenant is parallel to the flood. So remember what God said. I'm going to blot out all flesh, but how is he going to do it? He said, I will cut off all flesh. So the language of circumcision, the language of cutting, comes out of the language of the flood. So God's solution to the problem of sin after making the promise that I will never again flood the earth like this, that I will never again destroy all mankind like this, God gives then a temporary sign of circumcision in which he makes an incision in the flesh. He cuts around the flesh, thereby preserving life all the way forward to the seed, Jesus. And you can see that if you get into the details of Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. You'll see that that Abraham, oh, sorry, not Abraham, Noah and his uh, seven, seven other people, his wife and three children and, and three spouses, so eight in all, get on the ark. And we, don't, we never think about this, but God tells them to get on the ark and he closes the door and they sit there for seven days. It's a weird detail, right? No rain. Seven days, and then on the eighth day it begins to rain. And the very next time you read in Scripture about that kind of event is when a child is born, seven days, and then the eighth day, you make an incision in the flesh. You cut off the flesh. There's a parallel between these two things. Circumcision is a, a temporary insertion in history that, that, whereby God can deal with sin and yet not destroy all flesh. It's a cut in the flesh. So I don't, I don't know if that was clear last week, but I want you to take note of that because it, it matters. Okay. 
that cutting off, that's, that incision in the flesh, it divides. And we went through some of those divisions. There's, there's more. So there's, there's entire separation in history. And Paul picks this up in Romans, and he, he says that the earth was subjected to slavery. We were subjected, in, in some sense, to, to being unable to fulfill what God made us to do. When, when God separated priests from kings, you, you, can't, you can't adequately fulfill either role without the other one. It's impossible. And, and the story of the nation of Israel teaches us that. And so that cut in the flesh can only be temporary because it's partial. Instead, the true circumcision must be complete, a circumcision that reaches inside a body and, and cuts off the very source of the flesh, the heart that rebels against God. It has to be death. But if it's, that death is to have any, any result other than eternal destruction, it has to result in a resurrection unto new life. And so circumcision looked forward then unto the death and the resurrection that was coming in Jesus, and it can be described then at the cross in the stripping of the body of flesh of Christ. He was raised then, he was raised still with a body, but no longer defined by flesh. It was no longer corruptible. It was no longer given over to destruction. Instead, he was raised to life. So all of that is found in verse 11. But what does that mean for us? In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, how does God do that? In verse 12, then, he, dis- he tells us, this is how. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him. Notice he, he, he changes the preposition. I've made a big deal about this. No longer is it just in him, but now participatory with him. It, with him we've been buried in baptism, and with him we've been raised up through faith in the work of God who raised him from the dead. Well, what, what's going on here? He says that the circumcision that God gives us, the circumcision that's made without hands, that cuts us into these precious stones that are built into God's house, it comes when God baptizes us. So in baptism, we are circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. If you remember from last week, I said that what what that means is you take death from the end of life and you move it to the beginning. Circumcision is a form of death, so is baptism. Baptism is a form of death in which you, you, you take the death that's coming, you move it right to the beginning so that you're freed from the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus did that. He was cut off in the middle of his life, and when he overcame death and was raised up from the grave, that death no longer has power. But it no longer has power not just for him, but for all those who are united to him. Uh, Remember, I made a big deal about circumcision being parallel to the flood. Well, One of the observations I think we can make from this text, if we combine it with 1 Peter chapter 3, if you don't remember that one, let's see if I can quote it for you. He's talking about Noah and the ark, and he says about Jesus who died, the just for the unjust once for all, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. He's thinking about Noah getting in the ark and moving through the flood, and then the floodwaters recede, and Noah gets off the ark, and he's raised up. Now, what's going on in that text is that Noah was vindicated. Noah suffered for all those around him. When God brought the flood for 100 years, Noah was mocked and ridiculed. He was despised. 
And when the floodwaters came and Noah was, and his seven were the sole survivors, he's vindicated, he's justified because he survived the baptism of God. There was death through the waters and there was resurrection after the waters. In fact, 1 Peter 3, he says, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. So, how does that work, the answer of a good conscience? He says the answer of good, a good conscience in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus goes through the circumcision. He goes through the baptism of death and resurrection. And when he is raised up to the right hand of God, it is a vindication. In his exaltation, he is justified as the one who overcame death. The, the judgment of God against flesh did not touch him because he was righteous. And so as, as he is raised up from the cross, he can say then with confidence, it's proof of a clean conscience. It's proof of, of, uh, of his untouchability, incorruptibility by sin. Now, in baptism, we are united to Jesus. So we're hanging on to him. And, and praise be to God, when Jesus is raised up from the dead and we are united with him, we can claim even ahead of time that good conscience, the vindication in Christ because we are one, united with him. We bear his name stamped on our forehead. Now, that does not mean yet that we're sinless. So how can we say we have a good conscience that we can claim the vindication of Christ when we still have a fleshly body and we fall short? And we're going to deal with that in the rest of Colossians because there's, there's a set of commands both in what we ought not to subject ourselves to, having been raised up with Christ, and what we must subject ourselves to because we've been raised up with Christ and we're made alive together with him. So we're buried with Christ in baptism. This is the space, the location in which this happens, and we are raised with him. And those two things in Paul are never taken apart. The emphasis, the emphasis that we find then in baptism is that we're raised up with Christ. We're united with him, and we're, of course, united with him in, in death and burial, but the culmination is that we're raised with him. And he doesn't describe how yet. Again, we'll, we'll talk to this. But that death that is naturally at the end of our lives, which would be destruction, we're united with Christ and... That death is moved to the beginning so that when we're raised up with him, we no longer operate according to the weakness or the fear of the flesh. We don't fight our battles according to the weakness of the flesh in which we live through fear of death, through showing our weakness instead. This is going to be the, the very key for Paul. He says, you have been raised up with Christ. So... Fix your eyes on him. Same, same idea as the author of the Hebrews. Keep seeking him where he is at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. We are attached to him. Now, verse 12. So we've got at least 18 minutes. You're raised up with him and... And then he gives this description through, through faith in the work of God 
who raised him from the dead. Now we have this modifier that everybody's excited about, faith. We have faith in God. We must have faith in God so that baptism which attaches us to Christ, it must have a corresponding faith or it does not accomplish what we read here. Through faith... And particularly that faith is in the work of God, the, the, the energy is the derivative of the Greek word of God. And remember that that's attached for us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, striving according to the work of God which mightily works within me. So we grasp a hold of Christ we grasp a hold of God, and we trust then in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And remember, Psalm 22, Jesus is the one who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out in faith to the God who raises, that you will raise me because I will proclaim your name in the midst of my brother. In the midst of the assembly of the righteous, I will stand up and I will magnify you. And he looks forward through all of history. And Jesus on the cross is proclaiming that God will raise him up. And we then mimic the faith of Jesus in our own faith. We have faith in the work of God who raised from him from the dead. So we're united with Christ. And we grab a hold of the very action which God already demonstrated in Christ. He raised him from the dead. He conquered the problem of the flesh. Jesus wasn't a sinner, but... He had a body of flesh, and going into the grave and rising up out of the grave, we see then God's answer to Genesis 6. We see God's answer to Genesis 17, that now we have a circumcision which is better than the circumcision before. It's a whole body circumcision in which flesh and transgression are dealt with finally. We're raised up with him. Verse 13, And you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Remember, those are the two problems we're dealing with. And he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. We're going to harp on this a bit more, but that life that he gave us with him, he's raised us up and to, to, to make us alive with him. That, that, that life is not the heart beating in your chest and the, the lungs that pump oxygen into Oxygen that pumps it, whatever. You get oxygen in your lungs so that you can sit on the couch and then live out your years until you die again. That's not what he means, but sometimes that's how we deal with it. That, uh, yes, I'm alive, and so I'm sure, and so I'm just going to go on, keep on doing the very same thing I was, and there's no difference between the life before and the life that, that humankind lived apart from God. Of course, that's ridiculous. But, uh, uh, well... Let me back up. When we fall prey into that way of thinking, that God has cleansed us, he's forgiven us our sins, end of story, we're alive. Then we're subject to these kinds of deluding false influences because God made us for more. So if you clean the house, you take out the evil spirits, and you do nothing to fill it up, you give it no vocation, no purpose, no spirit, then Jesus tells us what will happen. Seven even more wicked spirits will come take up residence there. To be alive means that God's Spirit dwells in us and 
we are returned to the vocation, the purpose for which he made us. Have you ever felt like or seen somebody that is purposeless? An empty shell. That's not life. God sent Jesus and we're united with him in death and resurrection so that we might live together with him, sharing in his vocation. And if you don't know what that means, read the Gospel of John. God, God the Father sent Jesus and he sent him with a job. And it's, it's, it's a job that comes out of Genesis 1, but that answers even more than Genesis 1. And when he's departing, on the eve of his departure, he says, that mission, I give it to you. You're filled up with this vocation then. And that, that, looks like, that, that looks like Jesus' vocation of suffering and dying and being raised up. And it looks like, it looks like proclaiming the gospel. And it looks like works works that Paul says are works by the Spirit in which we're enlivened by God's Spirit to do the deeds of God on the earth whereby we rule over it, we subdue it, we fill it, we multiply in it, and God's glory is placed upon us. That's what it means to be alive, but more on that in the future. So we still got these two problems to deal with externally. Frequently we stop at the, the, the first side of it. We're attached to Christ, and so he acts both as our substitute, as our representative, and as the one that we mimic, which is great. That's, that's, we're halfway there. But in, in Paul's ex- description of what God has done, there's, there's still an external bit. So not only do, do we have to have our transgressions forgiven, Jesus is to pay for them, and we haven't explained why he has to pay for them yet. There's two different theories for that. But... And on top of that, he has to remove the deadness of our flesh. So we have to have our minds renewed, uh, to use the language of chapter 3. So we were deceived, we were transgressors, we had corruptible flesh. All of those things have to be dealt with. And at the cross, of course, Jesus dealt with them, and then we are attached with him. We're united with him. But also, there's some stuff going on on the outside. And if we're not set free from that then we still have an issue. And that's, one of the, that's, that's what Paul is dealing with. Because in, uh, in verses 16 through 23, he says, he gives two sets of commands, let no one act as your judge. So remember, he's, he's disarmed, he's stripped rulers and authorities. They're the ones who judge. Let them not act as your judge. So he's specifically telling us what the external forces that stand against us, what Jesus accomplished in overcoming them. And then secondly, in verse 20, he says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees? So if you look at verses 14 and 15, you have those two items. There is handwriting of decrees against us which are hostile to us, and he has blotted them out, taken them away, when he was nailed upon the cross. And secondly, then there's rulers and authorities and he stripped them. So you don't subject yourself to the rulers and authorities because they've been divested of any kind of authority. And you don't subject yourself to these decrees anymore because they've been blotted out. They don't exist anymore. And so he's specifically setting us up to understand what being alive in Christ means, having been washed clean, having been knit to him so that our hearts are encouraged, so that we won't fall away. And now, don't be deluded. Don't forget that God has done all these things and that in so doing, verses 14 and 15. So what do they mean? Wow, 10 minutes is not a lot of time to cover these. 
All right, so verse 14. He's forgiven us all our transgressions. Well, how does, how does, how does this all work out externally? Verse 14, and this is, this is where it's surprising because we're used to saying that Christ became a curse for us, that he was nailed on the cross. He took his sin upon himself on the cross, and he died on our behalf, and that is true. He dealt with that in the first half. But now, in verse 14, we have something a little odd. He having, my translation says canceled, but that word is blotted. It's the same word from Genesis 6. He blotted out, like as in the flood. He blotted out. And remember that, that, that idea means you, you can anoint out as if you're, you anoint a parchment with words, and you anoint it out by putting even more oil on it. You cover it up so it's completely blotted out. Having blotted out, and my translation again makes it a little more confusing, it says the certificate of debt consisting of decrees. Now, where it says in the NSB, the certificate of debt, that's one single word. It's hierographon, and it means handwritten. So it's a compound word, so the typical word for engraving, and then an engraving done by hand. And he does this on purpose. Now, we have to ask what that engraving done by hand is. He gives a modifier. It's not of debt. That's, that's a made-up word in the translation to try, to try to move us in one direction of interpretation. It's handwritten decrees. So that, that's, that's the modifier. So somebody wrote by hand decrees that have two aspects to them. They're hostile to us, and they stand against us. So decrees against us that are also hostile to us. So what are those decrees? Well, interpreters will, will tell you it's like an IOU. But the reality is that he defines it for us. So if you look down at verse 20, I just read it. He says, don't submit yourself to decrees. So context dominates. What are the decrees? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all, all refer to things destined to perish with the using. The decrees are the same decrees that God gives in his law, but he describes them in a very odd sort of way. They're handwritten decrees. So we have a picture of the law in these decrees that stand against us, the same kind of decrees that you see in Genesis 2 when God told Adam, don't, 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 don't eat from this tree. And Eve interpreted it says, well, don't touch it either. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These kind of decrees you see in the law. Don't enter into God's house. Don't enter into the Holy of Holies. Don't touch that bread. Don't touch the, the Ark of the Covenant. Don't taste of the wine in the presence of God. Those are all decrees that stand against us. Or for, for Gentiles, they're hostile. They say you can't come in at all. You can't even, you can't even draw near as far as the Jews, Jews are, because you are dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And so those, those decrees, they speak out against us, but they're handwritten. That handwritten is, uh, I believe there, because we were reminded we're circumcised. That's also an engraving. It's a writing, but done without hands. So God has taken his law, which he wrote from, from Exodus uh, 30, 33, we know that the finger of God engraved the words of God on the tablets of stone. But now, he pictures them as if, as if they're just commandments of men. So look in verse 22, they refer to things destined to perish with using in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. So he talks about that law as dead because it is dead. He took that handwritten decree, and of course, there's many more things that go into 
the handwriting. If you, if you want to scour your Bible, what you'll find is that in, in Exodus 33, we have a, a picture of what happens when God's on the mountain writing those decrees. The people raise up a golden calf. They stand opposed to God. They're transgression. They're, they, they're dead. Uh, and the calf is ground up, and God in his anger says, I will blot them out. I will blot them out forever. And Moses says, no, you must go with us. And God says, he relents. He says, I will go with you, but those who sinned against me, I will blot out. So there's still this, this coming threat of I am going to erase those who sinned against me. And that idea of blotting out, it's picked up when we talk about our names being written in the book. Constantly God's, God is saying in the Old Testament, I'm going to blot out your name if you do this. Or um, I'm going I'm to blot you out. I'm going to blot out the entire memory of the Amalekites. I'm going to erase you from the memory of mankind. But here in verse 14, it says, I'm going to blot out the, 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 the handwriting of decrees. That has two references in the Old Testament. We won't turn there because we are completely out of time. But we're going to soldier on. Um, two references. <laughs> One is to the certificate of divorce. It's handwritten. By, by the man, it's a bill of divorce against his wife in which you write it out and you give it to your wife and send her away. The second is what leads up to a divorce. You have, you have an adulterous relationship and you go before the priest and you write out the, the decree against, against your wife. You write it on, on parchment and then he says you blot it out into, into the water of bitterness or the water of rebuke. And then the wife drinks that water of rebuke, and God is the one who judges. If she drinks, and it's true, her thighs will shrink, her belly will grow, she won't bear children, death enters her womb. And those, those two things go together. So here, God is picturing that handwriting of decrees which stands against us, which hostile, is hostile to us. The law acts as that handwriting of decrees which stands against us. It's both... It both speaks out against us because we're transgressors, and it's hostile to us because we who are Gentiles are dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. It says, don't come in, don't draw near. It's correspondingly then also a, a, a bill of divorce. You can't come in. You can't come in to your husband. It's ascending away. But instead of us, the bride, drinking that cup, here in verse 14, Jesus, Jesus takes it on himself. So the handwritten decrees which were against us and hostile to us, he's lifted them up out of the way. So not only, not only did he blot them out, like as, in, like as in a baptismal flood, he washed them clean, he also took them out of the way, corresponding to the two ways in which they speak against us. They speak against us because we're transgressors, and they speak against us because we are dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. One is blotted out, the other is taken away in the nailing to the cross. So, taking a, taking a step back then, what God has done, and God is, God is the subject of this action, is the law is embodied in Christ. He takes it in himself. John describes Jesus as the word of God made flesh. Well, he is the law embodied. God's word which stands against us. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the law was nailed with him. This is abnormal. We usually we think about the curse from Galatians chapter 3. The curse of God resided on, on Jesus, and there he is on the cross. Or our sin from Romans chapter 8 is in Jesus on the cross. But here it's the law that is embodied in the person of Jesus and nailed to the cross. And remember, Paul is doing this specifically 
for his warning. He wants to warn us, don't be deluded in looking backwards to what was, to the commandments that that were. They've been nailed to the cross and they've been blotted out so that they are no more. Now we'll have another discussion about what that means, but shorthand, the law was also raised up. And we see that from Paul. The law that was sin and death becomes a law of life in the Spirit. It's not different, but the effect is different because we're enlivened by the Spirit. And so we can talk about the royal law of Christ, the law of liberty, the law of freedom out of James. All of those things are looking to the law remade in Jesus. The certificate, the handwriting of rebuke against us was nailed to the cross. And then finally, my apologies, you had daylight savings, so you're going to get an extra few minutes here. Finally, then, the second aspect, verse 15, when he had stripped the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So he took out the decrees that we are no longer to be subject to. He blotted them out, like as in baptism. And then in verse 15, we have the inclusio completed, a chiasm. My apologies again. I didn't do it. Verse 11 and verse 15 share this main verb. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the stripping of the body of flesh, and corresponding to that externally, he stripped the rulers and the authorities. It's a circumcision that on the cross, when Jesus was made naked, and then he was paraded around in a public spectacle and a triumph. And that, that word... That word in the Roman culture was when a Roman general came back, he took all of his enemies behind him and he walked them through the streets as a public spectacle of his victory. It says that Jesus, he's walking through the streets, he's been stripped of his royal robes, and he's being made a public spectacle, but what's really happening in the ironic twist of God's good work is that the rulers and the authorities, those who thought they were in charge, are being stripped of their robes of authority. All of that authority is being taken away so that in verse 16 we can say, therefore, no, let no one act as your judge. Not in regard to food or drink or Sabbaths or th- things which were a mere shadow because the rulers and the authorities that reigned over that, that law, that used that idea as a way to subject us, they are stripped of their authority because Jesus at the cross, when he died and was resurrected, he made fools of them. The decrees were taken away and... By overcoming death, Hebrews 2.14, he rendered powerless him who wielded the power of death. Those rulers and authorities then, they encompass all the way from Satan to the angels overriding the law and even including men so that the greatest nation on earth, the Romans, and the greatest religion on earth, the Jews, both rulers and authorities were divested of their power when Jesus walked out of that grave. They had no rule or authority. They couldn't conquer him. And by the power of an indestructible life, he took up the robes of authority whereby we now submit only to him. All right. I have more to say, but we will try to pick it up next time. But I wanted you to see all together then the work of Jesus internally, externally. There's a stripping of us and there's a stripping of rulers There's a blotting out of us in baptism and there's a blotting out of the decrees against us so that holistically the transgression and the uncircumcision of our flesh is dealt with 
And the final concluding point, the one that we have to remember that Paul wants us to know is that you are made alive. You live now with Christ, in Christ, and don't forget it because the minute you forget it, then you start grasping like, like the overweight person on the couch at the stupidity of the world and you, you, you call the nine, whatever the number, the 1-800 number that gives you the $5 pills that will fix all your problems. We won't be susceptible to that kind of deluding influence if we know that Christ has made us alive and we know how he's made us alive. So if you would stand with me and let's pray. Father, we pray that you would encourage us through your truth this morning, that as we're gathered in your presence and we come before your table, even in the food, knowing that you've given us life and you continue to give us that life abundantly, Lord, help us to grasp the fullness of what that means, of who Jesus is and the mysteries unveiled in him, that we would understand that that life has a, a vocation and a meaning it comes with authority so that we would not be deluded by the kinds of things that Satan uses to attack us. Help us to know and to trust that he has been divested of power and that we have been raised up with Christ into a new authority. And help us to live in that with you and in you. Encourage us this morning. Give us the fullness of the mystery and the knowledge of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.